Welcome to The Developmental, a podcast about the messy, beautiful ways grown-ups grow up. Here, we explore turning the science into the day-to-day practice of adult development in teams, homes, organizations, and life. Hello, friends, and welcome to a new episode of The Developmental. This is a conversation I can't wait to share with you, with a leader who has had an enormous impact in my life and my professional trajectory, and who I know for a fact has had a similar influence in the lives of other people who have been lucky to work with him. Mike Vero is what I call a developmental leader, although he doesn't embrace that description and, as you'll see in our conversation, is quite humble about his own impact. Yet, I'm quite confident in describing him as such. Mike is the person to whom I owe much of what I do today, as he has been the one who enabled my PhD research by creating the context and opportunity for me to study the vertical development of leaders as they undertake profound learning experiences in an executive program. He was also the person who believed in the potential of the Vertical Development Institute when this project was nothing but the seed of a thought in my mind some years ago. He encouraged me to nurture that seed, and here I am today, recording this podcast with him and coming full circle to unpack how exactly he has managed to hold this space of growth for myself and others over the years. On the professional side, Mike has had experience in leading complex adaptive transformations and large-scale capability building in various industries. He grew up in Brisbane, Australia, and began his career as an officer in the Royal Navy after graduating from the world's oldest leadership school, the Royal Naval College in Dartmouth, UK. Following his military service, he worked in program management roles in technology and banking before joining McKinsey and Company as a transformation expert. Over eight years at McKinsey, Mike worked at the intersection of strategy and transformation in unlocking the full potential of people and organizations. Beyond transformation, Mike founded McKinsey's senior leadership development programs that served Australian and New Zealand rising leaders and was responsible globally for the firm's research on teaming and psychological safety. Mike now works in the aviation industry. I'm very curious what nuggets of wisdom or ideas for experimentation you'll get from our conversation. So without further ado, here's Mike Vero. Hello, Mike, and welcome on The Developmental. <laughs> Hello, Alison. Thank you for having me. Um, I have been uh, an avid listener, so uh, it's a really surreal kind of experience to actually kind of now be joining you live for something I've been listening into. Oh, thank you. This is so cool. Uh, this conversation is so cool, and it's such a full circle in in so many ways, which uh, I think we'll unpack together. Um, but I'm, yeah, very, very excited to have you here and nerd out on vertical development and leadership and who knows what else. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so maybe let's start with a with the start of uh how we actually met and yeah. uh, how our paths yeah crossed. that's right <laughs> <laughs> and uh then i'd love to dive into you know how you came to be as a leader in the way that i've i found you as a leader and i met you so i think it's five years i was reflecting this morning thinking it's wow. five more than five years now wow 
Um, and we met at the other end of the world. We're That's now right. both in Australia and we were both in London doing a course on a developmental tool That's right. uh, that measures uh, people's stage of development. And if I remember correctly, you were the only Aussie at that that's right. Of course. The Half only exhausted, like constantly jet lagged. Jet lagged. Right. Yeah, that's right. And I was like, what's this, what's this guy? What why why did he like cross the oceans to come to this? Yeah, yeah. Course? That's right. Um, and I was uh just uh I had just submitted my research proposal to get into my PhD, and we were still based in Europe and getting ready to move to yeah. Australia. Yeah. So yeah, do, do you want to share a bit of, you know, what, what had gotten you there? Like what had gotten you interested in coming and learning about how to measure vertical development? What was Yeah, and I, I remember the, you know, the conversation, and it was a few conversations that we had, but I remember the specific conversation where you were talking about what you were about to begin in terms of your PhD journey and that you were looking at Sunshine Coast, you know, in terms of and I, I'd flown uh, all the way to the other side of the world from, you know, this kind of big-ish country town being Brisbane to <laughs> go on this, this very, um, you know, like this very bespoke course and just, you know, crossed paths with this amazing woman doing this amazing work. And she was about to relocate to an hour away from me. So um, the universe was synchronicity. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was absolutely uh, working um, to, to, to have us cross paths. Um, I was, uh, so at the time I was at McKinsey um, and I'd been given a lot of support to, um, to go away and, and develop and build something really unique in the leadership space. Um, and I was really fortunate to be given so much support to do that. I, um, I did eight years at McKinsey uh, and I joined there in about 2014. The, I guess the reason why I've been given so much support is because my career at McKinsey was sort of a tale of two halves in that the first half of my time is just all transformation, um, working on, you know, really complex problems with amazing clients and um, coming to the sort of, you know, tail end of that four years, there was a, a couple of things that happened, you know, you know, at the same time, the first thing was that, um, you know, my wife and I found out we were having twins. And so twins, you know, the impending arrival of twins that will change the course of, you know, whatever, you know, plans that you had. Um, mm. But but equally at McKinsey, I think what I was noticing about all of the transformations we were doing is that there was something that there was something more out there on transformation. And we hadn't discovered that kind of, you know, additional thing that we could overlay on top of all of the transformation work that we were doing. And I had a hypothesis that I think it's something about leadership during transformation. I think that there's something in here that no recipe or no process or no kind of, you know, following a rhythm. I don't think that's enough. I think there also has to be something that happens you know, um, uh, on 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 the internal side of some of these, um, you know, some of these leaders in 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 serious positions of authority and the work that they were doing, um, 
because the problems that we were facing, um, the problems that clients were looking at, um, they weren't procedural problems. They were, in some cases, they were, you know, genuine identity problems, you mm. know, who, who, who were they as an organization? Um, and, um, you know, who might they, you know, have needed to become to be, you know, as successful in the future as they had been in the past. And it's tricky to think that, um, that a, a, a process or a recipe is going to get you there. I, I think that it was, um, I knew it was something more. I just couldn't get my arms around it because the leadership space is just so, you can really get lost at sea in the leadership space. Um, yeah. And so, so I you, think- You were looking to almost uh, unpack the internal process of transformation, the psychological process of transformation leaders would undertake as they were leading organizational transformation. You had a sense that those two streams would go together. In a sense, I, or... I wouldn't. I wouldn't give me that much credit, you know, because, <laughs> because at the beginning, I, I was just a novice. I really was. Yeah. All, all, I, I just had a hunch. Yep. And I, I really, I think that I was so lucky to work um, and to discover, you know, people like you and a lot of the people that we have worked with over the many years we worked together. I was just so lucky to kind of come across folks that were truly able to kind of, you know, drag me up from that kind of novice state. And and I was very much at the beginning, I had a hunch that there was something more. Um, but maybe, you know, that maybe the reason what what sparked my curiosity, I think, was um I I began my um if I go back to the beginning, I, mm -hmm. I began my working life um in in the Royal Navy. So I, although I grew up in Brisbane, um, I had this, uh, I don't know, ambition or courage or stupidity to kind of convince myself that, um, in fact, the, the really the really vulnerable, slightly embarrassing story is that when I was like nine or 10 years old, I watched a movie called The Hunt for Red October. And I watched it like a hundred times at, when I was that age. And that was it for me. I just went, hey, I'm just going to join the Navy and aren't I lucky that wow. I don't really have any doubt about what's next for me after school. And I didn't um, know that about you, Mike. I well, didn't know you, you knew yeah, so early. I knew really early. And it I, had the, I had the gift and the curse of knowing so early because yeah. once the Navy... Once the Navy told me what grades I needed to enter the Navy, I, I achieved just those <laughs> grades at school and, and not, not a single grade higher in any subject. I, I, had, I, I achieved the minimum, you know, I needed to achieve to, to, to you know, chase after my, um, my childhood dream. And, and so I joined the Navy at 18. I was really lucky in that, you know, for those who don't really understand the military, the the military is broken apart into, um, you know, officers and and sort of uh, and enlisted um, uh, men and women, and and so I was very lucky to to go in at at, a, at an as an officer. So I I entered the navy as an eighteen year old officer, and so immediately you're in a position of 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 authority or a position of responsibility, and and you're on a leadership path almost d directly in a sense. Precisely. Yeah. Precisely, and so I I joined. The Royal Naval College in in the UK, which is at Dartmouth, and and I was there for a year, and and 
they were trying to turn me into someone who, you know, could be respected as an officer. And I, I think that if you were to ask anyone, um, you know, if you were to ask anyone what I was like as a junior officer, I was terrible, terrible. I Like I made all of the mistakes that, you know, an 18, 19, 20-year-old that you would expect them to make you know, being in a position of authority at such an early age, you know, it was just, um, it was, it was such an incredible um, learning environment for me. And I was very young, the average age was typically after university. So I was kind of surrounded by sort of 22, 23 year old, you know, sort of older brothers and older sisters, and 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 so many of them, um, so many of them were good to me uh, in in kind of you know raising me, you know as a, a as a you know kind of later stage teenager you know early mm-hmm. adult, um, and I also made all of the you know the the mistakes I remember I'll never forget very early in my career you know, um, I had one of my older brothers pull me aside and, um, you know he said to me you really need to remember that when when the junior sailors, when they salute you, you see, you need to remember they're not saluting you. They're saluting the position that you hold. Right. And they're, they're saluting, you know, the the meaning of the position that you hold and the crown. Um, but don't make the mistake of thinking that they're saluting you. And, and honestly, he was giving me that advice because I think he could see that I was making the mistake of thinking that, I deserved, you know, people saluting me as I walked past. Um, and I was drifting into that, you know, kind of, uh, I was drifting into that that kind of fallacy of thinking that it was me and, and not the position that I was very fortunate to be in. Can I, can I ask a, just a quick question on this one? I know you'll continue the story, but I think this is a really interesting origin story for, for something that I know about you. Uh, and you, you, do, you do have that self-deprecating almost <laughs> style about you um, where I always felt like you don't cling to the formal positions of power that you might have been in. And I wonder if it traces back a little bit to that kind of moment. Um, and what is that? What has that meant for you? Like, how how do, has that made a difference that you you separate the position from you um, instead of identifying with the position? What's what's been the impact of that? Well, uh, hopefully, the impact has been both good for me and good for the folks around me. Um, but I think the reason why the story. I think the reason why that that moment stood out for me is because, um, and I, I I had that advice really young. You know, I was probably twenty or twenty one when I when you know I had that older brother pull me aside and go, "Listen, um, I think the reason why it has stood the test of time is because uh, I think that it can be it can be really alluring and really attractive to begin to identify." With the role and so i by no means do i think that i've kind of conquered that part you know of Mm-mm. um you know of, or conquered that trap i think that that story stays with me because um it's almost a way of sort of self-tracking you know hey yeah. you know sort of when are the times that actually you know i do begin to 
um, you know, over-identify, you know, yeah. with the position that I hold and, and, um, and how do I kind of, um, you know, how do I use that story um, to, to kind of, you know, rein me in because I think the human ego will, it'll, you know, yeah. it's just so easy. It'll just, you, you, you really will kind of, um, it's so easy to kind of fall into that, into mm-hmm. that trap. So that, that, but that story has stayed with me and it's one of, it's one of the many experiences that I had, um, as a, a very young, you know, sort of leader. And so coming back to, um, you know, that that midpoint in my McKinsey career and that hunch I had around leadership, you know, I think when I, I think looking back now with, with the benefit of hindsight, I think what was happening for me is that, you know, I just had been a student of understanding leadership or trying to understand it. I think I'd been a student since at least 18. Yeah. You know? And, and so, um, you know, somewhere in the region of sort of 15 years plus when I was at that midpoint in my my time at, at McKinsey, um, you know, I guess I just kind of went, hey, I think I want to sort of pick up this kind of thing that I've been, you know, kind of dipping my toes into trying to understand the personal reasons um, and, you know, try and see if I can come up with a perspective that where I can either make sense of my own journey and make mm-hmm. sense of the the wisdom that was sitting behind some of those stories that, you know, you know, or some of the advice I was given, you know, what's the, what's the kind of wisdom yeah. that sat behind that, if I can kind of figure that out and, um, and maybe bring that back to some of the work we were trying to do at McKinsey, which was really, um, it was, it was big work. And that was mm-hmm. big worth work in both the, the, the private, the public and, and the social sector. So that is, such a long answer nah. to you know how did we find ourselves <laughs> meeting on that course in London so but that's that's really oh, how, how it came a, about yeah and I think I watched it's so the movie cool. when I was nine <laughs> it's it, it is so cool because I think there's something I don't know sometimes in us that we are actually like we feel there's almost like a thread of life pulling us um yeah. and we yeah. kind of hold on to it um, but it also explains <laughs> some things that I've I've learned in in the five years since we've known each other. Yeah. Um, because I remember in that London workshop, you were talking about this program that you were a dean of at the time. That was this cross sector, cross industry leadership program whose aim was to create this really generative developmental environment for leaders to explore those questions that you were mentioning yeah. around identity and personal growth and how that actually then impacts their capacity to lead uh, adaptively. And I, I, I remember how passionate you were about that being a laboratory for experimentation Yeah. and to kind of bring in my own thread in the story, the synchronicity goes forward because my research proposal, which I had already written and submitted was yeah. all about studying vertical development within an executive leadership program, which at the time of writing the proposal, I had no idea what that program was going to be. I just had this uh, stupid yeah, faith right. in life. Yeah. That it's yeah. gonna, the yeah. program is going to emerge. So then yeah. not you so were sharing stupid the after pro- all. Yeah. <laughs> not so stupid or um, yeah, naive, I don't know. But um, yeah. when you were talking about, oh, we're doing this program and you know we're looking at transformation of leaders and I was like, oh, that is so interesting. Yeah. And I do yeah. distinctly remember you saying, oh, I think we've got the program that you actually 
are looking for um, for your research. So that was how uh, a beautiful learning partnership emerged. It where it was, and believe me, we we needed you way more than you needed us. You know, you could have picked oh. any program, but um, I knew that it was just what you, I knew what you were doing was breaking into new ground, and. Um, and that was just so interesting and exciting for us. Um, so for me, it was please, <laughs> we uh, can you pick us for for this work? That was terrifying. I remember that very clearly. <laughs> and actually, terrifying is something that I, I'd love to zoom in on in this particular conversation, because yeah. um, I think um, and the reason I was so excited to to bring forth some of the underlying rationale for some of the things you are doing as a leader is that I felt in many, many ways you've created developmental environments around you. You'd, you've done it for me as I went through my research and you've done it for other people. And we were researching how leaders grow and how development happens. So for me, there's something really powerful in, in walking that talk. And I know it's always imperfect. And you've you've said in many conversations we've had, oh, I'm only learning. And I know you are. But there's something about that thinking around risk-taking or seeing the potential in something. Like I think what I was trying to do was pretty out there, a bit edgy, a bit risky. And I I, I wondered for a long time what made you take that risk and go, okay, I'm gonna, you know, bring this research in uh, into the program and see what happens um what <laughs> what happened what happened oh, i wish i could <laughs> i wish i could give you a simple answer i, I um i'll try the, the 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 truth is is that you know you you touched on it alice and and um you touched on that kind of that idea of developmental leadership and and i think it's important i'll, I'll try and define it yep um as i understand it um but I, I know there are going to be better definitions out there. But the way I kind of think about developmental leadership is that, you know, um, there there is a leader typically in a you know some version of a you know position of responsibility or or authority, and and you know through their leadership, um, others you know become you know bigger versions of themselves, you know, um, um, and it's either the leadership or the environment or a bit of both. And, you know, I know that there's some magic in there, but, um, you know, I, I guess the reason why I wanted to pause on that is because of all of the, to, to, you know, of all of the work that I did in this space, you know, kind of following my hunch, you know, and trying to understand what, what, what's in here, that idea about developmental leadership, it really felt like the Holy Grail to me. It really mm. felt like, that was, you know, if if we can figure out a way to create more developmental leaders across our community, the 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 kind of ripple effect of that, um, it will you know it will last generations, and um, you know there will be many many people that will be better off as a result of that, and. So that was always the holy grail for me. I kind of just went, listen, this is this is the idea for me anyway. And mm. um, so it's incredibly humbling to hear that 
your experience of our, you know, work together when I was responsible for these programs was developmental for you. Um, and I almost kind of want to back away from that because I kind of go, well, surely not. Like that couldn't have been me. I was, mm. uh, you know, all the, all, the, all the time I was trying to figure out how to do that, you know, and how to codify it and how to speak to it. Um, and, and meanwhile, there was, um, you know, someone very dear to me who was actually, you know, kind of, you know, having a lived experience of that. So I want to back away from that. But at the same time, um, I, I know that, you know, I kind of, I won't rob you from that experience just because I don't want to hear it. Right. So, yeah. Um, Thank so, you. That's generous of you. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, uh, um, so I, the, the, sorry, you go. No, no, you go, go. Well, but the risk, the risk taking question, um, I, I, it, it's it's true for me that I really feel as though I was kind of standing on the shoulders of of giants who who were also taking some some big risks and they were showing me that risk taking is kind of innate, you know, with what we were setting out to do. And um, I remember John Lydon, who was the managing partner for the Australian McKinsey office at the time. Um, John Lydon provided a lot of support and a lot of input to the, the sort of foundations of this program. And one of the things that we were setting out to do is we wanted the program to play its part in, in addressing, you know, gender imbalance at, you know, senior levels of, of, of organizational leadership. And so we, um, we invited, you know, usually we invited, you know, somewhere in the range of 50 to 60, you know, sort of Australian organisations, and they were public, private and social sector. One of the requirements, though, beyond um, beyond sending their high potential talent and also kind of just getting the, the, the layer right, usually mm -hmm. it was kind of, you know, that sort of, you know, 15, you know, plus years of experience, high potential, and, and usually those folks kind of sit in a particular layer. But um, but but John said, um, you know, every every organisation gets four places, and it has to be uh, an equal gender split. You know, this was back in two seventeen, mm -hmm. and I'll never forget that we hadn't really even gotten started, and this really important organisation just said, "Great, we want to be a part of this, but we just don't have female leaders." at that level of organ our organization. So we'll just send, we'll just send two men. Mm. Um, and I went back to John and said, Oh, Hey John, listen, you know, we, <laughs> we set out to do this. We tried, but, um, but this organization, you know, I guess they're kind of asking to, for permission to sort of not do this part of the, the criteria. And, and, and I, I won't, you know, that, that conversation with John stayed with me because because John just said, well, they can't, they can't attend. Like, I'm sorry. Yeah. Like, you know, they're, they're not coming and, and let's make some bold calls around this, Mike, because we're not going to change the course or, or this program won't play any part in changing the course of that gender imbalance. If it's not willing to kind of hold some of these principles, um, you know, uh, hold on to some of these principles and, and, and be courageous against some yeah. of these principles. And so, that organization that they they weren't able to attend um and the following year they they did because they you know saw how serious we were but you know that that stayed that stayed with me particularly in the design because all of a sudden i kind of 
I think I think I needed someone to show me that if we just kind of do what people expect we will do yeah. in this program. What's easy, comfortable, avoiding tension. What's comfortable. And the <laughs> truth is, is that had we gone, had we gone with a program design that met the expectations of these incredible high potential, you know, they were the, you know, a room full of 200, they were 200 like veterans of, of, you know, their, their, their respective industries, you know, and, and, and these are also folks that are heavily developed as well. So they've seen everything, right. But had we gone along with what they expected of us in the program, we wouldn't have shown them anything that they'd not seen before. And the truth is, and, and this kind of comes back to the fallacy of sort of trying to be able to measure good is that I think that if we'd done a survey at the end of a program that they expected us to deliver, I think they would have given us good feedback. Yep. You know, so so we wouldn't have even known that, you know, we weren't on track. Yeah. What we what we were trying to do when we we, you know, the idea here is that we were trying to we were trying to change the course of leadership for Australia and New Zealand by working with as many leaders as we could and um and so there was a there was a real trap here for us if we didn't take some risks mm. um, and, and and no one would ever know you know like yeah i would have been i would have been patted on the back with a program that was kind of in line with their expectations and got good feedback and it would have been job well done um, but and less hassle for you in the process so um, because easier. all of those moments of pushback so they would have been easier. deeply uncomfortable so uh, absolutely you know and I'll never there was another moment and um, you know one of those other giants that we both know with Tom Harkin um, Tom Harkin in in the first year of the program Tom Harkin was a massive risk in the design mm-hmm. and and bringing the work that he does into the program and yep. um I'm so lucky to have he his was the first session on the first day of the first program that we ran. And that was a, you know, I, I was sitting at the back of the room and I said to myself, truthfully, I said, Hey, my whole career could be over in about an hour and a half to two <laughs> hours, you know, based on how this goes, because because I really, <laughs> really took some risks with with some of those choices Um, and early on Tom was a a really um, unexpected unexpected choice both for us as McKinsey and also unexpected for the the 200 folks in the room so I kind of had that moment where my sort of career flashed before my eyes um, but I might I might say why maybe for people who maybe don't know who Tom is and I'm going to put it in the show notes uh, for people to look up but but the work Tom does at Tomorrow Architects and Tomorrow Man, Tomorrow Woman, the three organizations mm. that uh, he's founded or co-founded is very, very deep, emotionally oriented work. So it's not that your typical corporate work. So uh, for people it's who not. are steeped in the rational and they just want a cognitive experience with slides <laughs> and That's a right. presenter clicking through the slides, this uh, this type of facilitation would have been a way out of the comfort zone yeah, experience. Yeah, so yeah. I, I could imagine the jitters you would have felt 
at the back of of that room. And I'm also it strikes me there's a bit of a fractal kind of nature to this story because when we talk about risk taking, it's the program itself is taking some risks in upholding some principles, which mean that mm. you have to push back on people that mm. otherwise mm. you would want to have in the program. That's right. Uh, so that was your internal risk taking. And then in the design itself, bringing people that are going to shake things up and are going to create discomfort for the audience, which means that those leaders in the room might say, what's this? Like, yeah, what did right. you bring that's us right. to? So there's this, I think, whole um, layers of moments when you would have taken risks or you would have kind of really stepped out of the comfort zone intentionally, knowing it could go badly. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, and Tom, you know, the way I experience Tom is that he is a very truthful facilitator, um, both to the, the profession of facilitation, but also the, the intentions that, you know, were sitting behind the work that we were doing. And um, uh, I came across Tom because I watched the the documentary called Man Up and and watched his work in that documentary, and uh, and and I and when you see or when I saw his work, I, I kind of went, that's that's um, that to me had a good chance of beginning a developmental experience where. Uh, Maybe we we as a group, including me, um, we needed to start with someone who was able to really genuinely embody and role model um, truthfulness to us. I first came across Tom when I was watching the ABC documentary called Man Up. And um, Man Up was a documentary about addressing um, some of the sort of, you know, archetypal definitions of masculinity in Australia and of course, through that expl exploration in that documentary, they they go and um, and observe Tom, who's working with a lot of uh, at the time working with a lot of uh, high school boys students, and and really sort of um, facilitating again truthful conversations about what it is what it was it what is it like to be a um, a high school boy in Australia with some of these stereotypes. I was watching Tom in action and I was watching what he was creating in some of these rooms and he was creating it both in high schools, but also in corporate rooms. Um, and for me, there was something that was, there was, there was some potential there that I thought if Tom is able to, in that unique Tom way, if Tom is able to kind of, Maybe to put it bluntly, if Tom's able to actually show us, you know, what it's like to embody, you know, um, you know, a sort of truthful expression of, you know, the intent that he comes into the room with, if Tom's able to kind of show us what this is like, um, that in itself is going to be a really big pattern interrupt for a lot of the folks in the room. And um one of the things that I was always daunted by was the collective intelligence, you know, of the 200, you know, sort of these 200 amazing leaders in the room. And so there was something about bringing together Tom and the way in which uh, he is able to create these atmospheres of candor, you know, these atmospheres of, of, of psychological safety, and then handing it back to the group 
and mm. sort of seeing where they want to go with it yeah. because um because there wasn't much that you could there wasn't much knowledge you could add you know to 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 these folks you know running a program with presentations and kind of like just transferring knowledge that wasn't um that that really wasn't uh honoring you know who they you know who they were um yeah. and so for me it was um you know coming across tom and bringing tom in and then having that moment at the back of the room uh where i was say where my career flashed before my <laughs> eyes and this whole experiment you know could have potentially turned into a complete disaster um and you know I'll, i'd never be trusted with anything ever again um having that moment and taking that risk um boy did it pay off um, yeah and and we were we were very fortunate to work with uh, with people like tom and others i think th- there are so so many powerful threads to to unpack here one is almost uh, uh, the, the risk-taking decision in it in itself because I think that's such a huge milestone for a lot of leaders or challenge for a lot of leaders almost this this sense of this is the right thing to do but if it fails my career is on the line and then I might just do the next best right thing to do that's yeah. less risky and and more self-protective so I think that there's something to be said about what enables you and you did touch on it because what enables you is having a leader yourself who encourages you to take that risk. Um, and I'm curious if there, there are other enablers that you see that allow people to, because y- you are not unafraid, you were still afraid that it might fail, but you did it anyway. That's right. <laughs> so I think, I think there's something very powerful in that. How do you take your fear by the hand and actually do the right thing, even when the risks are high? And maybe I'll stop with that question. And I'd love to explore what, what that combination of psychological safety and risk meant within the program itself, because there's, there's something powerful to learn from that too. But yeah, I, yeah. I'm curious if there's anything else like for you when you go, and I've seen you do this multiple times where you felt like, yeah, this is risky, but are we going to do it anyway? And if it fails, well, it fails, but it was not ever without consequences. So I think it's easy to take risks when when the risk of failure is inconsequential, but when the risk of failure is, is you know, consequences could be serious, but the payoffs could be amazing at the same yeah. time. How do you do that? I mean, what, what else other than a supportive other, in this case, a leader yeah. that supports you and has your back, what else helps you do that as a leader? The, the, the question you're asking is, it's just such a, a great question. It's also just a big question. And, uh, and, and yes, having others show me, you know, the way to do it and also have my back, um, that was certainly one piece of the puzzle. Um, I would say that another piece of the puzzle was I was really lucky to work at McKinsey, you know, for all of the things that McKinsey is, McKinsey is a risk-taking organization. And so mm. there was also something entrepreneurial about the culture that In was the culture. there. Mm. And so part of that, you know, is another, is another piece of the puzzle here. Um, but I'm, I, I'll give you an answer that, I don't think I've kind of fully lived into yet, but I think it's kind of where I've been heading. Um, And strangely enough, um, 
you know, I think I always was able to see that um, I was coming from a place of love and, and that gave me so much, it, it was a safety net, you know, strangely, it was a safety net. And, and I say that I haven't fully lived into that because that feels like a really huge statement to, you know, to say it's, it, it feels like a huge thing. You know, it, it feels like a huge way to live your life to kind of go, Hey, listen, you know, as long as, you know, love is my safety net. So, you know, like, how could I ever, um, how could I ever, you know, sort of be scared or, you know, kind of, you know, um, be worried about any of these experiments. The truth mm-hmm. was, is that I was really worried. And the truth is, is that, you know, I'm sure you can remember a bunch of times where they, things just didn't work. Yep. They just completely fell on 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 themselves. And, yep. um, and, you know, I always kind of went, you know, I always told myself, number one, you know, um, there has to be some degree of failure because if there's if there's no failure in the work that we're doing, then actually, you know, the only thing we can tell from that is that we're not taking any risks. We're just playing it so safe. So I knew that there was always going to be failure. And I remember being in, in that program or other programs that we've been a part of where things have just, just completely imploded. Um, mm. But the place in which I started from um, in putting things back together or sort of recovering from those experiments was um was 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 love and and i think what i mean by that was i think i think what i mean by that is i would i would also i would always be careful about you know ensuring that judgment didn't enter the room um because when the failure when the failure happened yeah Mm. because um because uh that can really, you know, kind of burn risk takers, you know, yeah. when it's kind of like, Hey, you take a risk and ju- it doesn't work and judgment enters the room. And, you know, you, those risk takers will sit there and go, well, why would anyone ever do this again? Yeah. If you're going to, if you're going to cop this judgment. Um, but, you know, I would sort of, I, I would use love as my safety net. And I think what I mean by that is I would kind of say, we, you know, we, we really respect you. We really respect your time. We also um, we also are hoping that um, that you can see our underlying intention here. Yeah. And um, and help us here because if a part of the program that we're working on here just hasn't added any value to you and and it hasn't worked then um, the the best thing that we can do together is figure out how we make this better, better. for the next class that's coming, you know, yep. kind of behind you. Um, now, now, did that always work? No. Was I, was I dragged into the room with participants and, and, and yelled at a bunch <laughs> of times? Absolutely. Absolutely. And every mm. time I did that, I went, you're absolutely right. You yep. are right. You've you've got this, and I'm so sorry. Um, and we got that wrong. Um, yep. And but um, but I still loved them, you know, because I knew that where they were coming from was a place of 
um, you know, they they had the, you know, they had the intention to learn within a precious, you know, period of time. Um, and so, you know, like there was no judgment from my side about, you know, the criticism that they were sort of offering yeah. back to, to us. And um, and I always knew that there were there were there were those, you know, there was even in the judgment, there was there was some some wisdom that, you know, we can take away and we can learn. So I think that the I think that, you know, beyond the the other leaders that showed me how to take risks, beyond the the culture that I was in that was an entrepreneurial culture, I think eventually, even though it's my only my halfway answer, I think eventually I kind of realized that um you know, love was my safety net. And, yeah. you know, if I can come at it from that place um, of loving the people in the room, loving the experiment, you know, and and trying to make the most of the sort of beauty of something that we, you know, tried to do but didn't work and what can we learn from that? From uh, that that felt um, that felt like a, like, you know, a way to do it where I was able to kind of, keep my integrity you know yeah together and it would also help you withstand that discomfort that fear that anxiety that came with the risk taking in it, a sense it did yeah yeah it, it it did and um and i don't i think the reason why i'm still living into that answer is because i don't think i realized at the time yeah um, it, it took me a little while to kind of figure out you know, what was internally happening for me and making sense of these mm-hmm. bold, bold moves because they did look like bold moves. Uh, yep, they were bold moves. <laughs> they were, <laughs> did look, but, um, but they, you know, that there was, there was, there was something happening for me which was able to take the heat out of that. Yeah. Because um, otherwise I just, I just wouldn't, I wouldn't have had the courage to do it. I think that's, it is, it touches me on so many levels what you're saying, Mike, because, um <laughs> You, you do know, and I've shared with you that the, the the one big finding out of the research we co co-created and you created the the space for me to do was that people transform when they're able to withstand their negative emotions. And the way people did that in in the people in the leaders in this program that I looked at and and you know tracked over the six months and interviewed and read their journals that they mm. shared with me and so forth. They, they did that through putting curiosity on top of their fear. Mm. And I feel like you've just given us another thing you can put on top of the fear that I've never actually considered, uh, which is love. Like, can, you put, can you put love on top of, of your fear in a really hard moment? Can you put love on top of your anxiety, of your grief of losing something when you're in the middle of one big transformation where you feel mm. like you've lost mm. your identity and you have no idea who, who you're becoming? Um, I think there's something really powerful about putting putting love on top of a negative emotion, just as it is putting curiosity on top of a negative emotion. And I've ended up calling this the contrasting emotion space because it's almost like the, the negative emotion doesn't go away as you're you were just sharing, but it, it's it it almost opens up a space in you that allows you to make the bold move to yeah. do it anyway. Yeah. Um, and and, yeah. and perhaps. That in itself, if we talk about developmental leadership, is developmental for you as a leader, but is definitely developmental for the people around you. Because in in taking those bold moves, you actually enabled other people to take risks, like myself, like Tom, like other facilitators you brought in, 
to do stuff that was not normally done in a corporate program. <laughs> That's very um, true. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I was curious, what, what have you learned? Like, uh, you know, in, in taking all these risks and creating all these um, opportunities, both for the participants in the program and for the people you brought in, in that ecosystem of facilitation, what, what was that like growth wise for you? Um and sitting with all that discomfort and and doing all those experiments. Yeah, and and I think that um, you know when I think about all of the you know wonderful people that we had in in many of these programs, and I think we got into you know into the thousands when we we think about all the different kinds of programs that we were running. Um, when I th when I think about it, all of that, I, I know that. I was the greatest beneficiary of mm. uh, of all of this work. Um, and my own growth, um, truthfully, it, it changed the course of my life. And I, I don't um, overstate that at all. Um, wow. the, I was just so, I, I was so lucky to be, um, to be given the chance to kind of, well, to be, given the support from um from McKinsey at the time which is hey if you think that we can if you think we can achieve transformations better um and with more long lasting results and you think that and your hunch is that, that that's through some you know kind of transformation of the of the leadership capacities you know in the context of a transformation go figure it out and bring it back to us and and we'll sort of you know we'll we'll integrate that and i think that you know over the course of the sort of 5 years where i was responsible for um for this work um you know i think that that's uh, mm -hmm. or i hope that that's what i did you know by the end we were bringing more and more of this back into um more and more of things like your research alice and and what we were learning about this work and also what the participants were kind of you know how they were helping us you know figure this out together um yeah so i think that I, I i you know what i hope is that that to me was kind of the way in which i contributed back into and sort of repaid the debt of 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 the support that i was given and yeah contributed that back to mckinsey but personally it, it did change the course of my life um i mm. i think i'm a, a far more a humbler person than hmm. you know I would have otherwise been, um, and you know one way that I think about the way that I develop, or maybe one way that I describe the way that I developed as a result of this is that I think I just I think I see and I hear more, yeah, and um, and that is such a precious gift to have received. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, sort of out the back of this process. And, and I think that the application of seeing and hearing more and, um, you know, we did a lot of, um, we did a lot of work with, with Ron Heifetz from, um, from the Harvard Kennedy School as a result of this. And, you know, if I was to say that we talked a little bit earlier about, um, you know, developmental leadership and, and, uh, and Bob Keegan also from the Harvard school of education, Bob Keegan kind of brought that to life to me, you know, during one of our conversations. 
um, that was a really foundational idea. That's a big idea. And the idea of seeing me, more. Well, the idea of developmental leadership, of developmental know, leadership how, this, yep. how, yeah, how big of an idea that is, and that to me being the holy grail. But another way of thinking about, you know, you know, kind of, well, beyond people becoming bigger versions of themselves, you know, is there a, is there a, is there a, a business outcome? Is there a kind yeah. of, is, is there a, you know, another social outcome, you know, besides these individuals becoming bigger. That is definitely a question I'm, I'm holding. And I'd love you to, to speak a bit to that because um, there's this personal growth that occurs. Um, but then, yeah. What do you see as being the outcomes? Yeah. And, of... and I, and, and I think I owe that to, to, to Ron Heifetz because Ron gave me this idea around what he calls diagnostic integrity. And the way, you know, the way, you know, he explains, or at least the way I heard him explain diagnostic integrity is, you know, that the challenge of seeing a problem for what it really truly is, you know, being able to diagnose you know, business um, or social problems and, you know, having integrity, you know, or bringing a truthfulness to really, really genuinely being able to understand the problem. And so when I, when I say that I am able to see and hear more, that puts me in the position of being able to be um, and and bring more integrity to the that day-to-day diagnostic process that you know all of all of those leaders around the world are doing every day you know they're kind of they're they're seeing problems and they're you know um, you know you know counteracting those problems and so for me that big idea around diagnostic integrity that to me is the um, you know what I would call the sort of the the payback, if you will, yep. you know, maybe even a, maybe even a measurable, you know, for all of those kind of, you know, capitalists out there, maybe even a measurable payback of having, um, you know, bigger versions of all of those leaders, you know, in their, in their organizations. And I think that when I, when I think about the hurdles that get in our way, every day and kind of stop us from being better diagnosticians of, of, of problems. You know, I think about how often we want problems to kind of, you know, match our expertise yeah, or, or how often we want to help our people by actually solving the problem, the problem. for them you know, and, um, and sometimes, I mean, I was reading some research the other day that I, I think the, the neuroscientists are figuring out that we, we even see adaptively, we, you know, our eyesight adjusts itself for our own survival. And, and so I, I was sitting there going, here's another piece of the puzzle as to why, as humans, we almost have no chance you know, um, of being able to see problems for what they are. We're just, we're so wired, you know, to, to, to see what we, to misdiagnose. Yeah, to misdiagnose. We're so wired to misdiagnose. And so, um, you know, like I, I think that the, that, that, 
that diagnostic integrity um, that comes from, you know, leaders that, you know, take on the challenge of development and they become bigger versions of themselves. I think beyond their own happiness and, and you know, you know, finding their, you know, the meaning, you know, in the way that um, is unique to them, I think another benefit is that organisations get these, get these problem solvers that are just better they they that that's just that's that it's just a truth of this um yeah. and it's it's my own journey as well um that the seeing and the hearing more means that in any transformation that i'm working on i would hope that i'm predisposed to um to figure out what is it that we're looking at um better than i used to you know five yeah. or ten years ago and here you're talking about those types of problems that Ron Heifetz would call adaptive problems, those that just are don't have a technical solution. There's not one way to solve it. No, maybe no, nobody's ever solved it before. So they're really messy, gnarly, and ambiguous in so many ways. So then that's would it right. be fair to say that that's seeing more? I would be curious if you if you any example comes to mind for you where, you know, what what is it that you see more of like wh when you do grow when you when you're able to be that bigger version um of yourself and i'll i'll share with you my own example i feel like the environment you've created for my research because in a sense you you were not my formal manager but you were you were the program owner so um there was this collaborative relationship and I felt like that you kept asking me all sorts of really curious questions. What are you really looking for here, Alice? And how are you going to go about this? And, and almost challenging my thinking in a way where I started to challenge my own assumptions of what I was looking for in the research. So I feel like through curiosity in this case, to make it concrete, you helped me see more of you know what was possible with that research or what kinds of questions what other questions could I ask? So, yeah, I'm, I'm curious if you feel like if you can articulate what is it that you feel like you see more of or what do you do as a result of seeing more? Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's the right question to, to ask and the, uh, the outcome or the kind of, I mean, I guess the, the observable um, the observable part of what changes is that you you do slow down, right? Um, and uh, and sometimes that, you know, I'm sure I'm working with people right now that that find that really frustrating. You know, they they find that as a frustrating experience. You don't rush into conclusion drawing conclusions anymore. I I, I yeah that uh, that uh, those those quick reaction muscles. Um, you know that those quick reaction problem solving muscles um they are not always necessarily there and so yep. the seeing and the hearing more the instantly observable thing that you can see is that i slow down and um and sometimes that's yep. appropriate sometimes it's not appropriate <laughs> hopefully more times appropriate than than other but you know and i think that um you know i th i think that the particularly in the post covid recovery the the kinds of problems that we are seeing I, I mean to use to use Heifetz's language there are adaptive problems everywhere and and I think that 
um, we have so many really well-intentioned leaders that are trying to make progress just yep. just like today let's just get a little bit further than we were in this yesterday um and it's so well intentioned and it's difficult to sit with the truth that it's also a waste of time you know sometimes because we are going down a a technical route which is Typically, we're using our expertise. We're using solutions that we've seen before. Mm-hmm. We, we're using, we're bringing answers that we know solved the problem last time. We're bringing that to a very different circumstance, and um, and so the the privilege of being able to see and hear more is that um, what I'm what I hope I'm able to do is I hope I'm able to make observations that disprove maybe the technical solution that yep. we were about to run off and implement. Um, and, and I think that there are so many organizations out there that are facing, um, you know, a workforce engagement problem post COVID yep. and um, you know, how coincidental that we have a whole bunch of amazing engagement programs that we can run to drive up engagement. And so you know, again, you know, coming back to that diagnostic integrity, you know, sometimes I wonder if we've framed the problem around the solution that's kind of sitting up on the shelf, yeah. you know, ready to pull it off the shelf because we know we can do that. We can, we can, yeah. that thing that's sitting it's on the easy, shelf. It's easy, easy to do, do an engagement program. <laughs> we can do it really well, you yeah. know, and, yeah. and, and we will, you know, this engagement problem, you know, why, why, um, why wouldn't be? And I, and I think though that, um, when you, when, you know, in a, and I think a lot of organizations are facing that. I think that, um, I think that what's really happening, the adaptive part of this is that, um, you know, I think we've got so many people in the workforce now that, um, that are just looking for things that work may not be able to provide them. And that's so confronting because, uh, we 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 need them, and so we we want a proposition that is appealing. Um, and so that's the that's the part of the adaptive problem that's scary to kind of stare into. Mm. But I guess the way that you know, back to your original question, the way that I changed was that I I was able to become a better problem solver by becoming a bigger version of myself because exactly. I also you know, rapidly developed in that time, you know, vertically developed, I should say. Um, mm. And 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 now uh, I really hope that, you know, others would also agree with me or at least the people I work with, they would agree that, you know, um, I'm a better problem solver now compared to the one I was, you know, 10 years ago. Do you feel you're also more comfortable not knowing? Because I think a big part of what you're describing is you're sitting in a space where you really have no idea. Um, you're you're creating an environment where you're enabling the solution to emerge, but you're not you're not the creator of the solution yourself. You're you're a, a facilitator quite often uh, as an a developmental and adaptive leader. Um, not using those two terms interchangeably, but we do know that adaptive leadership is developmental and. Yeah. Development favors yeah. all of those capacities for adaptive leadership, but is it a bit more? Yeah, I don't know. Um, 
less daunting to not know yourself, not hold the solution yourself? That that is daunting, and yeah, you know, and I I think that the um, I think the trap that I try and observe, you know, myself walking into all too often is that 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 kind of dopamine kick that you get when you just provide the easy You've got answer. an idea or, yes you know mm-hmm. i mean how amazing is hero leadership it just feels it feels so good and and you know our our brains are you know kind of like that that like they the, the, we're completely geared to hero leadership and so yep. what what i do find is that i really you know i think one of the parts of this that's that's important is i do find that i i need to catch myself you know, walking towards that hero leadership because it just feels so good, yeah. right? Um, but I think that if I if I step back and and if I go back to, you know, the first half of my time at McKinsey, we were doing so much transformation and there was so much great work, and I got to the end of those four kind of years, five years, and I kind of went, hey, this process kind of approach to transformation isn't kind of working, and I think I made the mistake of demonizing you know, process-based transformation. I kind of went, it's not enough. It's not going to be, it's not going to be good enough for the big problems. You know, it's not up to scratch. It's, it's just, it doesn't honor, you know, some of these organizations that are trying to, you know, that have, that have got identity crises, you know, and I spoke about that earlier. Um, The, the, the irony is, is that, you know, where I've, where I've got to today is that the way out of the daunting part of kind of not being able to, you know, kind of come up with these answers is it's kind of back to process. Yeah. It's kind of back to, okay, I don't have the answer for this, but I I am familiar with a process with which we can firstly disentangle the technical parts of this pro pro, you know, this problem from the yep. adaptive. That's a kind of that's a big process step. And then the next process step, you know, it's it it's kind of you know, how do we put some structure around learning? And it's not the same process because I think that it is a very different process, but it still is, you know, a process of, of, of leadership that I can bring to some of these problems because we do need to have a process of first, a bunch of first steps that we're going to try and most of them won't work. Some yep. of them will. And then we take the second step. And so I think that as daunting as it is, um, looking at the curliness of some of these problems and, um, and you know, kind of doing some self-management to keep, keep me away from the, the hero leadership, you know, I think that what does give me peace of mind is that I, I, I think that there is, there is a structure that emerges and there is a process that emerges yep. some of these harder transformations. But you do need um, you do need developmental leadership because that's kind of innate to experimentation. It it, yeah. it really it, it's such a precondition to experimentation and this kind of diagnostic integrity. Without that, you 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 just end up down a technical path and and you're just going to waste a lot of people's time. Um, yeah. So. So those two ideas, they 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 keep coming back to me, and um, they are the they are almost like the kind of modern tools that that I was the beneficiary of developing, you know, through the work that we did together. Mm. And and I think I think you're also speaking to 
um, and as I'm pulling the the threads, the many threads and the many like doors we've opened here uh, right. towards um, what might be the conclusion of this conversation. Although I feel it could go on, there's so much more that you kind of unpacked that I'd love to dig into. Um, how do you actually create developmental environments? And I'd just love to pull out of what you shared uh, over the last hour or so, a few things that I have stuck with me and I feel they're tangible, like you can look for them. Um, there's some, and, and they were playing out in the very design of, of that program that we were talking about, because that program was meant to foster vertical development. So it was not a program meant to pour more content into the brains yeah, of these already yeah, very sure. knowledgeable leaders. Mm -hmm. It was meant to do something much more subtle to create mm -hmm. that sort of mm -hmm. inner growth towards that bigger version of, of themselves. And, and it seems to me like there's always this fine line between can you create a supportive enough environment where people feel safe to be themselves, to try stuff, to fail, and can you uh, extract judgment out of the discussion yeah. over failure um, yeah. and 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 not take it personally when failure has happened and kind of not over-identify with your position, which I think is a very good recipe for taking stuff personally. Yeah, Because I imagine that's like, that's when so you are your position and it's failed, yeah. you're... Yeah, you're, that's you're right. Um, and, and I felt there's a really interesting connection between where you started this story with that early lesson of you're not you are not this position, yeah. um, whether that actually enables you as a leader to be a bit more courageous to lead with love and, and know that you're going to fail. And there's something to learn from that. And it's not going to annihilate your whole identity yeah. uh, for having failed. Yeah. So there's that safety. But then there's also that challenge that um, creating, and you gave the example of Tom and what he brought to the program and what he brought was a lot of developmental discomfort where people were mm. really taken out of their comfort zones. They That's were true. invited yeah. to be vulnerable. They were invited to be candid. They were invited to touch uh, base with their emotions mm. in a professional context. Mm. How radical is that? And, yeah. and <laughs> yeah. so then I think that, that combination of challenge and support when you're able to create that something really magical, some unfolding occurs within human beings where they start to be able to see more because they challenge some of their assumptions. They are able to look at things from a different perspective. So I, I wonder if I missed something important in that. There's not This is not a recipe, but I'd love people to kind of reflect and especially leaders listening to this you know, what is it that I'm doing that might be developmental for my team? Mm. And how am I growing mm. in in the process? Oh, there's one more thing I think that I think you touched on uh, with multiple examples is this iterative process of experimenting with stuff mm. where you, mm. you'll you take multiple risks, but there will be, there'll not be the biggest risk you could take. There'll be a yeah. significant enough risk to, to learn something from, even yeah. if it fails, right? Um, but then there's that, challenge support kind of source that allows That's you right. to even take the risks and, and make the experiment, do the experiment in the first place. What else is there in that, that soup, <laughs> developmental soup? Uh... Listen, I think that um, I can, I can share the part of my story that contributed the most to you know, kind of me being who I am and and others benefiting from that. And I think that I don't think I realized this early enough in my career, but I only began to make sense of it, you know, later in life. And, and, I, and you know, maybe I'm just going to 
begin to sound like a broken record to 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 anyone listening to this but i i have been loved by so many bosses over the course of my career and what did that feel like um it it felt and and you you touched on the challenge and the support but it felt um as though uh i was able to get things wrong and uh, their support and their encouragement, ultimately their belief in me was still going to be there. Yeah. And that for, for people that? that are on the receiving end of belief in you, I mean, it is such a tailwind um, over the course of your life. And so, you know, initially, um, I think initially I uh, I wasn't interrogating enough what was happening. You know, I wasn't interrogating like this feeling that I had and also who they were to be doing this. But I think later in my career, I began to kind of interrogate what was it? What like why that? Why did they do that? You know, like what was it um, about them whereby they were this source of you know, they, they, they believed in me and they believed in others around them. Um, and what I've learned later in life, and it may not have been formal development that I, that they were, that they were in, but I think that, um, the one thing that's common for all of those people is that they had, they had been on their own inner journey and they had done their own inner work on themselves first. And that, you know, that product was just someone that, you know, um, took the stance of, of giving um, and believing in others. And, and that was the stance that, you know, for whatever reason, it, it just made them happy. And so I, I think that one of the inconvenient truths about developmental leadership um, for, you know, for others that want to, um, you know, become developmental leaders. And I sit here not feeling like much of a developmental leader as well. So I'm also doing my own work. I think one of the inconvenient truths is there's there's really no way around doing the inner work. I, I think that kind of the the external um you know the the external um uh the way in which you show up externally and the effect that you have on others. So the kind of the, what we get to see on the outside is just a product of, you know, a lot of courage that people have decided to show for their own inner work. And yeah. that's an inconvenient truth because it's just so hard. It is. Nobody wants to do that. That's very painful work. <laughs> it's so painful. It's, it's so uh, painful. You've got to face uh, all of your BS yeah. and all of your inner demons and, yeah. and not and like what you find me, and still believe in yourself. Like, <laughs> I've got a lot of inner BS, like all that hero leadership. Like I used to wear a uniform. I was like the symbol of a hero leader, right? So I think that I think that is an inconvenient truth. And I say, and I still say to you right now, um, I'm at the beginning of this and um, I'm still figuring that out. And I, and I think that, you know, those kind of two big ideas about um, developmental leadership and diagnostic integrity, you know, I, I just, um, I, 
I love exploring them and I love trying to make sense of the, the pieces of the puzzle as to kind of how I've come to where I'm at right now. But, um, but, you know, my journey has been one of, you know, just attempting and attempting again, the inner work. And then hopefully, um, hopefully that, that puts me in the place to, you know, to, to begin to focus on others more. Yeah, and I, I think I think you've paid it forward uh, multiple times, Mike. Because um, and I think I was I feel very touched just hearing how you know you've been loved. You've kind of given love mm. uh, in turn. Um, and, and if I think of of what's enabled me to be here doing this work right now, you're definitely <laughs> like top of my list of an enabler, not, not just from, you know, creating the opportunity for me to do that research, but through the way you've just modeled what it's like to hold space for others to grow and just see what they're capable of. Um, and I don't think this can be understated. And I, I'm almost inviting people who listen to kind of consider who are they, being that person for potentially and maybe who mm. has been that person for them because I, I think there's a thread here that we actually pass on to other people when we've had that experience and mm. are willing to do the face your own bs mm. work mm. <laughs> um because you might have had that experience but not done the work and i'm not sure how that would That's have turned right. out well um, i and and i am I am equally grateful and um and uh, and and I owe a lot to you as well Alice because the work that you're doing is really important and you brought such um concreteness and and science to uh the things that we were attempting and so you really professionalized what we were trying to do and believe me um without you uh it 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 would it wouldn't have it would have lacked it would have lacked a lot of potency so thank you for for professionalizing um a lot of the work that we were trying to do and and I'll be forever grateful we we're both people who don't like to receive the compliments <laughs> i saw it you squirming so deeply uncomfortable. the listeners don't get to see you squirming yeah. that's right i am definitely squirming i'm a bit hot too um <laughs> so uh mike i'm i'm grateful to you on on so many levels and i'd love to just conclude this with one one last question because we're we're both on a journey and we're learning and we're kind of failing and hitting walls and what's what is your hope for this whole effort of being being a developmental leader, being maybe a developmental person, because I, I know you're striving to take this into your family life as I am. And there too is a whole universe where we try and fail uh, many times. But, you know, wh why is this worth work worth doing? I kinda, yeah, if- Wow, if, boy. Um, I think we've all, I think we've all had experiences that um that that we wish you know our kids will will never lead you know live through and 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 that our friends will never have to go through and and I think that some of those experiences um you know have shaped who I am today and I I think naively and uh maybe just naively I think naively I think I can I think I can do something, you know, in the world to reduce some of those bad experiences, whether it's 
exclusion or whether it's, you know, just, you know, kind of pure, you know, kind of, you know, projected meanness and stuff like that. I think that we all go through those moments in our life. Um, and, you know, why do we, why do we do this work? Why do I think it's so important? Because I think that, I think we can reduce the volume of those, mm. uh, of those negative, of those negative experiences that, you know, too many of us have lived through too many times. And so I think, I think about the world that my children are going to grow up into. Um, I hope that they are surrounded by more and more of these leaders that that just have the generosity of spirit to believe in them. And because what I do don't doesn't count as far as my kids are concerned. Like, <laughs> who cares, or dad? But yeah. but I hope that you know. I hope that what we put into the system um, well. comes back to the ones that we we love very much and. And the ones that maybe we, you know, we, you know, we know that are deserving a lot of this uh, out there in the community, it comes back to them too. And 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 I think that I'm naive enough to believe that there's a chance that some of this will actually work and translate through to that outcome. Yeah, I love that. And if I were to, to put it in a tagline, I'd say that wiser, more conscious, more mature leaders cause less pain. Um. Yeah, that, I should have just, <laughs> I should have turned <laughs> the question back to you. <laughs> oh, no, that's just yeah. just my summary of what I've just heard. But I think there's something very powerful about that. Yeah, so, you, I, I think that's, uh, I think that's how I'd answer it. Deep gratitude to you for uh, who you are and what thank you, you do. For, and, and thank you for the invitation. And, and, and hopefully there's some, some good stuff in here. It's been awesome. Thank you. This conversation has been both inspiring and emotional for me. It was a powerful reminder of how much impact you can have in others' lives just by the way you show up. A few things stood out. Developmental leaders are people who create the conditions for others' growth. And to do that, it really helps if they themselves are willing to look inwards, face their own shadows and patterns they might not be proud of such as the temptation to jump in and save the day from a hero-leader attitude. I also learned that it really helps if leaders don't identify with their formal position. You are not the title on your business card. Staying humble and real and keeping a tag on your ego then helps you be bolder about taking meaningful risks and allowing yourself to fail and learn something in the process. It also turns out that when you don't identify with your formal role, you're more likely to not identify with either your successes or failures, which in turn can be very liberating. I learned that having an environment that gives you freedom to do things differently does matter. So does having people who see the potential in you and offer their support even when the going gets tough. I will also add that while this conversation with Mike was focused on individual work, choices and lessons of a leader which enable them to be a developmental catalyst for others, in reality no leader operates in isolation. Your context matters. The system you're embedded in matters. Vertical development is never a solo journey. That's something we will be exploring in other episodes. 
So I'm very curious to learn how this conversation landed for you. What have you taken from it for your own practice? What questions or reflections did it leave you with? Feel free to share the comments on this episode and have a look at the resources and references I added to the episode notes. Some very cool thinkers Mike has brought into the conversation, so hopefully you'll explore and find value in their work. That's it for today, my friends. Until next time, stay conscious, stay curious, and whenever you can, stay wise.